Good morning. Jesus is good. My name is J.C. Thompson. I'd like to welcome you to Brookwood Church. Um, we are continuing our series called Living Changed Lives. We're traveling through the book of Colossians. Uh, last week, we kind of took a detour uh, with our kids being in here with us. Went a little further in the book. We're coming back to where we were uh, before we had moved a little bit further into chapter 3. So we'll be in chapter 2 today, starting in verse 26. You can go ahead and turn there. Our theme verse for today comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, which just says this, and now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow Him. The title for the message today is Legalism. Legalism is uh, something that I think has great temptation for followers of Jesus, and a lot of times people who are not following Jesus don't even know that they are uh, in a legalistic attitude, legalistic behaviors, legalistic mindset. And so today, when we talk about some behaviors today, if, if you don't know Jesus, if you're just asking questions, you're going to hear some phrases in our text today and go, I, th- I thought that's really what the Christian life was like. And it may be difficult to kind of understand what we're walking through today without a ton of experience with the Bible, understanding what these practices really look like. And so my hope today is to clarify some of those things. Uh, I would say that this particular passage is probably the most difficult passage in the letter um, because it's a lot of language that maybe we aren't necessarily used to, some things that in our culture at least aren't necessarily things that sometimes we would struggle with. But there are definitely applications to our own lives as we hear these pieces. And so for me, my hope is today that you walk away with a renewed love for the gospel offer made to you and that your understanding of how much God loves you and just what was accomplished through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, what that truly means for your life as you seek to follow Him. Now, it seems like Paul, who is the author of our letter, is frustrated by these false teachers. Uh, And so, when you look at these practices, you maybe go, why is Paul even frustrated by some of these things? These seem like good behaviors. These seem like good attitudes. But what you'll soon realize is, is that these people were deceptively trying to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were adding to Christ's sacrifice that somehow in our life, they needed more than just the sacrifice of Jesus. And so, Paul is, is frustrated, and you can sense it as we talk about that. Now, nowhere in the letter is it explicitly stated, here is the false teaching. But you get clues today as to some of the things that the false teachers would have been trying to advocate for the Colossians to take part in. And so, while it's not stated, this is it, you get a big clue as to what they're actually talking about. So, today we're going to be in 16 through 23, uh, but a couple weeks ago, Josh Masters talked about what the sacrifice of Jesus truly means for us, and that's the foundation of our passage today in verses 6 through 15. Josh helped us understand what union with Christ truly means. He also helped us to understand that the sacrifice of Jesus is full and complete, lacking nothing. Namely, the specific things that he talked through were that we're united to Christ and that we can take these promises, these benefits offered to us in union in Christ and help renew our faith, strengthen our faith to grow deeper, to grow our roots deeper into the things of Christ. 
We are new and being renewed in verses 11 and 12. We are completely forgiven in front of God as our judge in verses 13 and 14, and we are victorious through Christ that no powers or man-made authorities, but also spiritual authorities can rule us anything other than accepted in the sight of God, and we can live in victory because of Christ's sacrifice. Those attitudes should drive us to change, and ultimately those attitudes formed by our faith in Christ will cause us to grow in our relationship with Him. So, our attitude starts with our belief and trust in Christ as Savior. And that's also how we continue to live. We continue to live with that belief and trust. This is going to be tough because I think it will probably take a couple weeks to walk through all of the specifics of this, but I'm going to try and cover it in a big picture, and I also am hoping a picture that you get today will help you understand the depths of love that God has for you. So in verse 16, it just starts this way, therefore, therefore, we're not going too far, but we'll get through it, I promise. In the, in the New Living Translation that you have, that word is so. Basically, the language that's being used here, both so and therefore, I knew as a Baptist growing up, I was taught very well that those two words help you understand the passage fully. And so, when you come across the word so, especially in the epistles, you should ask the question, so what? And when you come across the word therefore, you should try and figure out what it is therefore. And this passage is connected. Our passage we're walking through today is specifically connected to those verses before as our foundation. So, because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is full and complete, and we can live victoriously in that sacrifice, therefore. Now, Paul has walking through what a relationship with Christ truly looks like. And like anything else, a relationship needs to be defined. You probably have a relationship with your boss. You have a relationship with your neighbors. You have a relationship with your spouse. You have a relationship with your children or grandchildren. But all of those relationships are different. And so when we look at our relationship with God, we need to figure out what kind of relationship it is. And also, we need to ask God, God, how do you define the relationship? And so I have an illustration here. Uh, this is a big contract. Now, I recently closed on a piece of land, and you are there in a room signing your name a bunch of times over and over again. Sometimes you don't understand what, you're, what they tell you, and you're like, I think I understand that. I don't really know. There's a whole lot of words to say two or three things. Uh, and so you're going, goodness gracious, this is a lot. And we do have a contractual relationship with God. But we didn't define the terms of that contract. God does. And not only that, but we didn't get to negotiate it with Him either. He tells us exactly what the relationship is supposed to look like. He also tells you what your responsibility is, and He tells you what His responsibility is. He helps you understand what it truly means. And I want to be clear with you before we dive too far in this passage, you need to understand what a relationship with God truly looks like. You need to understand what is the gospel offer. What does that mean before we get into what is not the gospel? And so I just had a list of things. If I went over everything that Scripture says, what are the benefits of being a follower of Christ? What are the things that we inherit from God as a part of His uh, contractual agreement with us? What does that look like? If I were to spend all our time today just going over that, we would have no time, and we would be back here next week trying to figure out all of those benefits. But I want to give you a few because I want you to understand the immensity of the contract that God is entering into with you. So here's some of the benefits. Here's what we get from relationship with God. 
We go from being a slave to sin to a child of God. We become branches of the true vine. We become a conduit of Christ's life here on earth. We're friends with Jesus. We have been justified and redeemed through His sacrifice. My old self is crucified with Christ. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. As a child of God, I'm also an heir with Jesus Christ. I've been accepted by Christ. I've been called and commissioned to be a saint. I am a new creature in Christ. I'm joined to the Lord and am one in spirit with Him. The hardening of my mind has been removed by Jesus Christ. I am chosen, holy, and blameless in Christ. I am redeemed and forgiven by grace through Christ. I am God's workmanship, created to do good works. I have confidence in my access to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm a citizen of heaven. The peace of God guards my heart and my mind. God supplies all my needs. I've been made complete in Jesus Christ. God loves me, and He has chosen me. That's a good deal. Now, before we get further, because this is unlike any other contract deal. When I signed all these contracts with my house, I had to say, here's my part to play. This is what I'm agreeing to provide to this deal. It was an if. If I do these things, if I make these payments, then the bank will supply what I need to build a home. If I qualify, then I will get what I need to get in order to buy a home, right? In order to build a home. But this contract is different. It's not an if contract for you. It is a therefore contract. God has loved you and sent His Son for you. Perfect. Complete. There's nothing else you need other than to trust in Christ as your Savior. Some of you may be walking in here thinking, you need to add something. That if I pray more, if I do more, then God will love me. Then God will understand me. God will put favor into my life if I fulfill my end of the bargain. And some of you are maybe even in the opposite. Maybe you've not embraced Christ, but you're also saying, you know what, if I can just do the right thing, then I'll earn relationship with God. But that's not the contract. No, the contract is you cannot earn relationship with God. No matter what you do, no matter how good you are, you can't do it. And yet God loves you, not for who you are. He loves you despite who you are. There's nothing in you that merits His love, not a hint, not a semblance, not a piece, not a portion. And yet God freely loves you, so much so that His Son was sent to earth to live obediently to the Father. And that as He explained how much the Father loves you, He was tortured and placed on a cross, dying a sacrificial death. Then he was raised to new life to show you that not even death holds him. See, God has given us an incredible relationship. But if we view our relationship as an if relationship, we misunderstand the offer of the gospel. As a follower of Christ, I am changed, I am transformed, I am different because of God's love towards me. Therefore, I will seek to love Him. Therefore, I will figure out how He has designed my life. Therefore, I will do what I can to grow in my understanding of that.
but it starts with Christ and God as foundation. And I want to give you a piece of this because sometimes I think there's this narrative that the Old Testament God is angry and vengeful, but the New Testament God is full of grace. And here's the problem with that. God is no different. In fact, it's one of the things that taking the Ten Commandments out of school, you forget the preface of the Ten Commandments, which is, I am the Lord your God and you are my people. Even the Ten Commandments, the rules start with relationship. Jesus, when He came to planet Earth as a human being, before He had done His first miracle as a human, before He had chosen any disciples as a human being, before He had performed any miracles, done anything as far as His ministry on planet Earth as a human being goes, God had this to say about Him in Matthew chapter 3. And it just says this, And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly beloved Son, who brings me great joy. You've probably heard this story before. Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. After John protested, Jesus said, no, this must happen. And as he's baptized, this voice comes from heaven, and then a dove flies down to affirm that this is God saying this about his son Jesus. And I need you to see something here. Jesus pleased the Father because of his identity, not because of his productivity. Jesus pleased the Father because of His identity, not because of His productivity. You please the Father because of Jesus' identity in you, not because of your productivity. Jesus offers His standing with God in place of our life on the cross. So when we say that this is what it means to be united with Christ, this is the foundation of why Paul is so frustrated at these false teachings saying that something needs to be added to the agreement that God has initiated on your behalf. You're just a beneficiary. You show up and get a house fully paid for. It's amazing. Not only that, not only Jesus, but in Exodus chapter 6, as there's some frustrations going on in the Israelite people, God reminds the people of His covenant agreement with them. And I want you to notice how many I's God says versus how many you's God says in this passage. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8 just says this, Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to you, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord. God's initiative, God's fulfillment, God's contract. Bless God that Jesus Christ has been offered on our behalf. Sinclair Ferguson points it out in this particular way. He said, there is no suggestion that God's covenant was an agreement reached by negotiations and mutually agreed conditions between two parties. No, God's covenant is a gift, and it is a glorious, beautiful, blessed gift. A gift given to us, not as we are, but despite who we are. So that relationship, that foundation is why we don't have to do certain practices, don't have to do certain things in the way that these false teachers were prescribing, and we don't have to feel condemned by them. So if you'll take out your outline, 
we'll get started. To have a relationship with God, you don't have to follow man-made rules. Follow man-made rules. Back to verse 16 in Colossians 2. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or for what you drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Paul starts very forcefully by saying, don't let anyone condemn you. Don't let anyone condemn you. These false teachers would have been basically lording some new responsibilities over these people who are Christians. And there's a ton, a ton of evidence through the New Testament. As you walk through Paul's false teaching, this was a big deal. There was controversy involved because these practices aren't bad practices, some of them. And the thing about lies is this, they're very deceptive. The false teachers weren't coming out and saying, hey, Jesus, isn't good. Jesus' sacrifice isn't good enough. No, they were saying, Jesus' sacrifice is great. And you need to do this. You need to follow this. So what are the things they were telling people that they needed to do? Well, first of all, they gave them some rules on what to eat and what to drink. Now, most, most likely these were tied into some Old Testament dietary laws, some rules that God had given to the Israelite people. But when Jesus came, Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7. He said all things are clean. All food is good. Paul says this in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. He said, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Spirit. Good stuff, but not the gospel. No one should judge you based on what they're telling you to eat or drink. Not only that, but there are also some other things. Festivals. Festivals. Now, these would have been the four festivals, Jewish festivals. It would have been Passover, would have been Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Lights. Great things. Celebration of what God is doing. But lord it over you that this is what you have to do. Paul says, don't be condemned by that. Sacrifices were made at the first of the month. Sacrifices were prescribed to, do, to, to happen during the new moon. And so you would have sacrificed at those particular times. Again, again not bad. Good practice. Not the gospel. Christ came and fulfilled all of those things. And then the Sabbath, and this is one that I think is still a connection to us today, something that we struggle with. But Scripture in the New Testament talks about when Christ came, the Sabbath is fulfilled. We rest as a principle on the Sabbath, that we allow God to work on our behalf, but it is finished. When Jesus declared that from the, the cross, that is our rest, and we can enter into that rest today, and we could do it on a Monday, we can do it on a Tuesday. We can Sabbath whenever we like. In fact, in the, the, when the church came, when, when Jesus Christ came back and the Spirit came on the people of God, when they were worshiping, they did not worship on the Sabbath day. In fact, there's estimate, uh, there's uh, textual evidence that Acts chapter 20 says that they worshiped on the Lord's day, which would have been on Sunday. And there's a ton of evidence about the Sabbath. There's several things. Another one is that there's nowhere in the New Testament where Christians are commanded to observe the Sabbath. Nowhere. Nowhere. And the Jerusalem Council in Romans, what they talked about specifically is that Gentile Christians should not, they shouldn't have to do these practices that were Jewish. They should do the things that are right for them to do as followers of Christ. So the Sabbath was one of those. They said Gentiles don't have to observe the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean for church attendance? 
Well, we hear in Hebrews that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and that's a good practice, but that can be on Wednesday, that can be on Thursday. What was happening was, is they were saying, no, 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 you have to go back to this old way of living. And here's the problem. None of these practices that are outlined are bad practices. Eating a particular type of food is fine. If you're gluten-free in here, be gluten-free. If you love gluten, love gluten. Eat it. Thank you, Jesus. I like my pizza crust flaky and not flat. They're all fine practices. They are morally neutral practices. They become legalistic when our attitudes and hearts replace Christ's finished work with continuing work. And it shows up in the pride that we exercise in our own life, but also how we pridefully ask, and ask is kind of a light way to say, command, Lord over, that people need to do it our way. And what's really troubling to Paul is these people in Colossae and Laodicea, they were younger weaker believers. They were not as mature. And they were lording these expectations over them. And the problem with legalism is grace. Grace rubs up against our human nature. So I want to give you a small illustration of what this looks like in my own life. Our small group went to this place at Hampton Station where you throw axes at a bullseye. Now, just to be clear, there is no time in my entire life where I will need to throw an axe at a bullseye for practical life things at all. And yet, as I'm being judged on how well I'm doing at throwing an axe at a bullseye, I am frustrated that I'm not scoring as many points as everybody else. And I remember just walking away that night going, why am I so frustrated by throwing an axe at a bullseye? Like, I teach for, this is what I do. I talk to people out loud. I don't need to throw an axe at a bullseye. But grace grinds against our human nature. We want to feel like we can offer something to God as merit. We feel like we need to achieve, we need to earn, but that's not grace. You can't earn it. It's why sometimes people have such a hard time understanding what the gospel is in their own life. Because they don't know any other relationship that looks like this full of grace. So I want you to imagine something. Now, in the first service, the room went dark after I said this, so that was not on purpose at all. But I want you to know the illustration is still a good illustration. Imagine you go to your house, and the living room, the room that you spend the majority of your time is, is, is completely dark. Everything's dark. It's just all dark. You can't see your furniture. If you were to walk around, you'd probably trip over some things. Paul's talking about these things being a shadow, They're not bad. They're just a shadow. In other words, we won't truly understand them until the light comes on. Well, imagine being in that dark room, and then the light comes on in your home, and you see all the things that you know. You begin to see things that have always been there. They've always been in that room. But it's not until the light comes on that you begin to understand where they are, the substance of them. How tall was that couch that we had? I thought that chair was two inches to the left. But now you fully understand them because the light has shone. These practices were a shadow. Christ is the light. And so when Christ came, all of these things we begin to understand in the light of his life and his death and his burial and resurrection. And what Paul's saying is the shadow 
Don't go back to the shadow. Live in the light and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Now, for me, that's such a huge thing. I think one thing to understand about this is that when it comes to our relationship with God, God's affection for us does not change based on our performance. God's affection for us does not change based on our performance. God's affection for us is based on His love for us and His character, not ours. So not only do we not have to follow these man-made rules, but we also don't have to have a particular experience, a particular experience. Verse 18, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying that they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. Now, these are some things, again, you're going, self-denial, JC, that sounds like a good thing. Why is that a bad thing? In fact, as you read through what Christ has commanded us to do, we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. But Paul's not saying here specifically it's the act of self-denial. It is the attitude behind self-denial. Do we view ourselves as more righteous than someone else based on the amount that we are denying ourselves? And these false teachers did. They kind of put themselves on a higher plane than these Colossians because of the practices that they had at denying themselves. Paul had in mind a false humility, the humble brag, that somehow I'm not really telling you that I'm this humble, but really I'm this humble and you should know it. He goes on to talk about that, and we'll see that a little later in verse 21. He also uses the phrase worship of angels. Now, this is an interesting uh, piece because they weren't necessarily worshiping angels in the same way that we worship God. These angels weren't seen on the same level as God, but they were going and having these worship experiences Some scholars say that they were worshiping alongside the angels. doesn't seem like Paul would be condemning that if that were the case. Um, What is more likely is is that they were petitioning these angels, seeing them as having a particular jurisdiction over their place of living to get some protection, to petition them to talk to God on their behalf. But here's the problem with that. Angels are not our mediators. Who who is our mediator? Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And there's some troubling language here, words that are tough to understand. In fact, every commentary I went to had a different thing to say because this word doesn't appear a lot in the Greek language. So the phrase saying, saying they have had visions about these things, that that verb there really means entering to enter into. So what they were translating, most of the English translations talk about entering into a conversation about said things. And that it's kind of weird because it doesn't necessarily make sense. It it makes a little bit of sense with the, the false teachers are prideful, and so they're entering into a discussion about these particular things. But when you look back at, at some older understandings of this particular passage, I saw in, in one, and this is kind of my opinion on this particular text, okay? Perry's taught you very well. If it's your opinion, it's not it, like throat out, right? So, like, I think the verb entering lines up with this particular um, take on this passage, which is it, uh, there was a cave around the area of Colossae and Laodicea, and people were entering into this cave, but then there was another part of the cave 
Again, mirroring a little bit of Old Testament here, mirroring the tabernacle, mirroring uh, the sanctuary, right, where there's a holy of holies. And so there's another part of this cave that not everyone would go into. And over the top of that entrance into the cave is this same word, which means entering. And so what I personally think, based on what I see in the text, is Paul is condemning this particular worship experience that people were taking part in and that they were entering into this place to have this experience. And these, these false teachers would have, told, would have talked about, testified to the experience they were having and saying that these Colossians need to go have that experience in, true, in order to truly be where they need to be with God. And here's the thing, that, that's just wrong. It's wrong. And experiences aren't bad. Like, Paul's not condemning all experiences. He's not condemning visions. Paul had visions. Peter had visions. Ananias had a vision. It's not that the experience is wrong. It's that this is a requirement. It's a requirement. And I think, personally, that's just difficult to deal with, that you do that. Now, I want to give you some things that we do this. And again, nothing I say here is bad. These aren't bad practices. But I've heard them talked about. And sometimes it feels like if I don't take part in these practices, I'm missing something when it comes to my relationship with Christ. So I want to give you a couple. Remember, not bad. I'm not condemning these, okay? A trip to Israel, a trip to the Holy Land. It's an incredible experience. Like, I've never been. I would imagine it would just be incredible, like seeing all these things, but to say that your relationship with God is somehow more than mine because you've been to Israel and I haven't is wrong. You don't need to go to Israel to be a follower of Jesus. And you don't, there's nothing in Israel you're going to find that's going to fill up anything because you have everything you need in Christ Jesus. I'll give you another one. Daniel plan, Daniel fast. You know, you see, this is how the Bible says we're supposed to eat. Well, Paul just talked about what you're supposed to eat or drink. Great things, all right? Can you get healthy with those things? Sure you can. Some of us like to eat things that taste good. Those aren't bad practices. And I think specifically fasting, it's a practice that Jesus expected us to take part in. But you're not missing anything in your connection with God. You're complete. You're full when you don't necessarily take part in the Daniel plan or the Daniel fast. We also do this with Bible teachers. We do this with small groups or particular Bible studies that somehow these are the missing link between us and our relationship with God. Bible studies aren't bad. I think it's great to listen to a wealth of Bible teachers, but I would also tell you that I'm, I'm not missing anything in my connection with Christ because I don't listen to that Bible teacher that you love or, the one, or if you don't listen to the one that I love. That's okay. Paul is saying here, don't, don't miss the gospel. And the Colossians were being judged that they weren't doing things in the same exact way. It's okay to take part in these practices, but to make an elitist claim to disqualify weaker or less mature believers is being specifically condemned in this passage. Paul made much of Christ when he talked about the experiences he had with Christ. He did not make much of Paul. You also don't have to prove your self-denial. You don't have to prove your self-denial. Now, we do this. We, we're called to deny ourselves, remember, but we don't have to prove it to everyone else. Like, you're not more mature because you deny yourself more, right? But we do need to find out how do we practice self-denial. What does that look like? So, let's look at these verses. Verse 20, for you've died with Christ. 
You have died with Christ. And He has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, that phrase again, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Now, Paul is quoting what we think would be the false teaching here, but it's also a normal part of Greco-Roman culture, this do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And so it could be that he's just quoting teachers around, not necessarily the specific false teachers. But these quotes let us know that this is specifically something that the Colossians would have been dealing with. There are taboos here of what to, what to taste, what to touch, what to, what to eat or drink, right? And so he, these false teachers were insisting that the Colossians obey these man-made regulations. And so then some of these false teachers would have taken this further. They wouldn't have just not done the eat and drink pieces. They would have also taken it further to go, let's do even more. Let's deny ourselves even more. I mean, there are stories of this through church history. Guy who sat on a pole on top in isolation for 36 years. That's crazy. That was what he did to separate himself from God. You see this in the growth of the, the monastic movement as these people become monks, that somehow isolating yourself from reality, the world, is somehow going to make you more acceptable to God. Now, that's not all monks, but that this world is evil and I must separate from it. And then they would become prideful by those steps that they had taken, and that's not an attitude of a follower of Jesus, pride. Now, these are not divine rules. These are human rules, human regulations. The food that you eat as a human being is not crucial or critical to your spiritual life. The food that you eat or don't eat is not crucial to your spiritual life. Now, we're free from these things. Paul's trying to get people to understand what your freedom in Christ truly looks like. Now, fasting is one of those things. I said before that Jesus expected us to fast. If you go to Matthew chapter 6, you'll see that. You'll see that in Matthew chapter 6. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. And then further down in verse 16, and when you fast, and if Jesus is saying when, that means you will at some point fast, and when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting, which I just want to point out, I don't know too many things where you are trying to look miserable and disheveled in order for people to look more favorably towards you. In fact, we kind of do the opposite in our culture. We try and make ourselves look better and good. And so I think the, the key here is still the same. Are you doing this for the admiration and acceptance of others? Jesus goes on to say, but when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. I think he also would have added, comb your beard. Then no one will notice that you are fasting except your Father who knows what you do in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. These practices, again, are not legalistic, but our attitude can be, thinking that somehow we can earn God's affections. So I would just ask you a few questions. If you're fasting, why are you fasting? 
If you're giving, why are you giving? If you're serving, why are you serving? Well, Christ commands me to. Absolutely. Therefore, right? Therefore. But can you serve with a prideful heart? Can you serve and also think that everybody should serve in the exact same way that you do? Yes. And that is the attitude that Paul is saying here is not a good attitude and in fact robs people of their understanding of the gospel. Should you be serving? Absolutely you should be. But it comes out of an overflow of your relationship with God. After Jesus washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, he says this, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. That is the therefore relationship. Christ served the disciples and then said, go and do likewise. Follow my example. It's when our heart says, if I don't do this, God won't love me. And it's why good works are an assurance, because we do them out of an overflow. Assurance comes from Christ's presence in us, that we are being transformed, that we are new creatures, that we are children of God. Our spirit should testify to the agreement that God has made with us. But if it's not testifying to that agreement, you should be asking yourself some hard questions. Often, just like the Colossians, we hear the word if in our relationship with God. If you don't do these things, then you won't inherit eternal life, and that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel at all. So how can we do these? How, how can we do practices? How can we keep the law as a guide but not be burdened by the law, not be burdened by sin? How can we put ourselves in the position to experience God? And I think the cornerstone piece of this is faith. It's faith. Just as Colossians said in 2.6, when Paul said this in, in chapter 2, verse 6, he said, just as you place your faith in Christ, you must continue in this way. Our faith grows as we understand God's love for us, as we understand His grace towards us, as we more fully understand what it meant to be dead in our trespasses and sins, but now alive with Jesus Christ. I think there's an old hymn that's a huge help with this. It's by John Wesley. It's called, O Jesus, Full of Truth and Grace. O Jesus, Full of Truth and Grace, more full of grace than I of sin. Yet once again I seek thy face, open thine arms and take me in, and freely my backslidings heal, and love the faithless sinner still. Do you believe that Jesus is more full of grace than you are of sin? Do you believe that? Is it the foundation for which you live and decide things? Are you growing in a love for God and a love for your neighbor? This is the gospel. That Jesus Christ paid what we deserve. Not because we earned it or deserved it, but because He loves us. Do you have a tendency to fall into the trap of legalism? 
thinking that Christ's sacrifice is not enough or that somehow something you're doing is going to fill up what might be lacking in you? Does someone's judgment of your practices fill you with shame and guilt? Or do you celebrate Christ's finished work in you? So we're going to pause for a second. I just want you to ask God, God, remind me of your love for me. We are prone to wander. We are prone to forget. We are prone to fall into these attitudes that are not the gospel. And so we're going to take a moment and pause. Counselors, if you'll come up front, and maybe you're in this room and you haven't, you haven't heard of God's gospel offered to you. I know it seems like those of us who are in this room who are followers of Christ, everyone in South Carolina must have heard the gospel. But I heard a story recently, uh, several months ago, of a seventh grader who had never heard of Jesus Christ before. Never heard of Him. So when you're hearing about the agreement that God has set forth for you, you may be saying, there's something in my spirit that I need to ask about, I need to explore. The counselors are here for you. They'd love to talk and pray with you. So let's take a moment to pause and ask God to remind us of the love He has for us, and then I'll close us in prayer. God, remind us. Remind us of Your love available to us through Jesus Christ. God, thank You. Thank You for choosing us. Thank You for giving Your Son to us. Thank You for being more full of grace than I have sinned. I pray today, God, that as we leave this place, that You'll remind us of Your love. You'll remind us of the benefits of the offer of the Gospel. And that we will grow in our understanding of it. That our roots will go down deep as we practice our faith. And God, if we've lorded certain practices over others, we repent of that behavior. And we pray for those who have not embraced Christ. We pray that they'll give up their life for Jesus. That they'll exchange their life. That they will embrace what Christ truly offers to them. Jesus, we love you. Empower us through your Spirit as we minister this week in our homes, in our schools, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods. God, we pray that you'll help us as we seek to love those around us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen. Please stack all the chairs. Thank you for being here.